I'm kind of tempted to get everyone to stand up and stretch because it has been quite a marathon. It's been quite a long service today. I won't get us to do that because that can be really awkward sometimes for people. So we'll just crack on. I'll try and be as entertaining as possible and keep it as simple as possible as well. Um, and it's not the easiest passage to do that with because 1 Kings 12 is not the one you would usually think of for a sermon. Um, in fact, puzzled faces is what I got when I said I was planning a sermon around 1 Kings. And it is true. The kings aren't exactly the place that we'd usually go for inspiration in scriptures. And if we do go there, it's usually to talk about the wonderful King David or the wise King Solomon. But not today. Today we're looking at the start of the split kingdom. In the north, we have the ten tribes that will make up the kingdom of Israel, and they will come under Jeroboam. And in the south, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin merge together, and they form the kingdom of Judah. And all this follows off of the previous chapter, which details the final years of King Solomon's life. Spoiler alert, they're not great. Once a paragon of wisdom, of virtue, a great guy, King Solomon, well, Solomon slips down the slippery spiral of lust and greed, which leads him to support some of the most horrific of practices, including child sacrifice. That's a big fall from grace. But we're not talking about Solomon this morning. We're looking more specifically at his son, Rehoboam, and also one of Jeroboam's subordinates, one of his uh, workers, Jeroboam, as they take up the mantle of king over God's chosen people. And from the reading that Carl gave us, he did really well, I think, because it was quite a hefty one, I think it's pretty clear already to all of us that these guys weren't perfect. In fact, even from the very beginning, they didn't really have a good start. They, they stuffed up right from the get-go. So why would we study these characters? Surely it would be enough for me to just close this sermon, and maybe you guys would love it if I did this, if I just said, well, they stuffed up because they were selfish, the end. Or the power went to their heads and they forgot their duties. But I think it's something that we love doing, actually. Pointing the finger, blaming people in big positions. We, uh, I'm, ast I'm astounded by how often we, and I include myself in this, blame those in the highest positions for seemingly not doing their duty. Perhaps we point to the Prime Minister, that's an easy target, and we say how he's showing poor leadership. Oh, he's the one that's causing my power bills to soar. Or maybe it's our bosses at work. Or that supervisor on site that stands around and does nothing. He's not doing his job. If I was him, I wouldn't do that. We do the same thing with our work colleagues and sometimes even our friends or family. Does this sound familiar, maybe? So-and-so is a lazy bum. They couldn't care less about their job. They're always on their phone. Or so-and-so is an arrogant schmuck. They expect everyone to do and jump at whatever they ask to do and to think the way that they think. But we're always only seeing a small piece of the whole person. In the case of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, it is very easy to point the finger and say that these young kings were the biggest imbeciles of their time. But when we take a closer look, they're actually not so different to us. So that's what we're going to be unpacking today. First, we'll take a look at Rehoboam to see the destructive effects of pride. 
Second, we'll examine the early moves of Jeroboam to see how damaging a lack of trust can have in our relationships with God and others. And finally, we're going to bring it all together by comparing these two kings to our true and perfect king, our servant king, Jesus. So let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Here we have Rehoboam. He's young, he's loved, and he's itching to get into the business of ruling. And he doesn't have to wait long. In the first few verses, we see that immediately after he is crowned, he is approached with a serious predicament. But before we get into the big standoff with him and the Israelites, I want to raise something that often slips under the radar, and it comes up in the first verse. In verse 1, we see that Rehoboam is crowned in the high place of Shechem. Now, why does this matter? We don't even know where Shechem is. You couldn't even point to it on a map. But that's the point. Jerusalem was where kings were crowned. And why was that? Because it was God's dwelling place. It was where the temple of the Lord was situated. So by being crowned in a high place and placing himself the highest, I think this is already telling us something about the kind of guy that Rehoboam was, where his priorities lay. He was self-confident and perhaps a little bit spoilt, used to getting his way. But enter Jeroboam and the Israelites. To understand why the Israelites are bringing this plea before the king, asking him to make the yoke lighter, I think it's necessary for me to provide a little bit of context. Solomon, in his reign, had instituted a rule in his wisdom of splitting the kingdom into 12 equal districts or states, kind of like WA, Queensland, New South Wales. And they roughly followed the boundaries of the 11 tribes uh, that were landed. Of course, the Levites didn't have any land. And each month, one of these districts or states was required to provide all of the food and the goods for the royal household. So one month a year, one area gave everything. Now, all this you can find in 1 Kings chapter 4, so you know I'm not just prattling on and making this stuff up. And when you take a look at verse 22 there, it becomes clear the sheer amount that Solomon's household needs to function. I mean, we're talking tons and tons of flour and oil every day. I mean, bear in mind that he did have, did have a thousand wives and concubines to feed as well. But in any case, as you might expect, some of these districts grew distant and frustrated and as they provided these huge amounts of goods for seemingly relatively little in return. The king didn't even visit us. And this is the context of the meeting in our passage. Israel wants to know if the new young king, Rehoboam, will be downsizing the operation, simplifying the royal family, and if he'll be investing into them and their work. So verse 4 is essentially the ultimatum. Rehoboam's reign will be defined by his response to this request. Serve us and we will serve you, but curse us and we will curse you. Rehoboam can be graceful and compassionate. His heart can be stirred for the needs of his people. Or he can sneer at them. He can mock them. He can question the fact that they even ask him to be lenient. He could use this as an opportunity to flex his muscle or power and influence for the right reasons or the wrong ones. And over the next few verses, we get our answer. In verse 7 and 8, we see Rehoboam reject the sound advice of his 
elders. And this is pure foolishness. These are some of the wisest of advisors. They advised his father Solomon, who was himself the wisest man to have ever lived on earth. But it's obvious why he does this in verse 8. Rehoboam would rather surround himself with yes-men who flatter his ego and praise his divine right to rule over those who would tell him to do work. He is an arrogant young man who does not want his status questioned. And what status is that? He is a living God, the supreme leader, the son of the wise Solomon, the great King David as well, king over a prosperous, multicultural kingdom, the envy of the world, great with wealth and power. And I've got up there a small clip of verse, uh, verse uh, is, where is it? Oh, verse 14 there. And this is just something I found when I was interested because this is showing some of his response. It shows a bit about his character. And I've got there an image there. This is, I didn't just put it up there because I thought it looked cool. Um, this is actually an ancient weapon called a scorpion. So when it says in the passage, I was scourgy with scorpions, it's not talking about the actual animal. It's talking about this weapon. And I think it just makes it even more impactful what Rehoboam is saying here. He is not just saying, you suck and I'm going to make your life hard for you. He's saying, you question my authority? The very fact that you question me means I'm going to make it infinitely more painful, more hard for you, than for no reason other than you question me. Rehoboam's pride and his greed blinded him to reality. He believed the role of king was to be served and not to serve. And in his arrogance, he didn't see the imminent rebellion and the eventual split of his kingdom coming before it was too late. The tough guy attitude, oh, it didn't achieve its intended goals in the end. And with this in mind, it seems that we actually have a habit of copying Rehoboam without truly meaning it. I mean, if we're perfectly honest with one another here, we all struggle with pride or maybe greed at some point or another. And it can blind us to the reality of who we are and our situation in life. For some of us, this might be our work or our financial assets. We determine worth by a monetary value. You know, I am worth X much, so I should be treated as such. Or there's that ugly phrase that some people say, which I bitterly resent, the classic, I deserve more than this. And I want to say that if there's anyone here this morning who thinks that, let me say unequivocally that that is wrong because we deserve absolutely nothing by ourselves. It is purely by the grace of God that he has saved and redeemed us. Perhaps your pride is in your family, your kids. Is your happiness dependent on how much control you have over them? Do you have a vision on your head of what you want your child to be in their 20s? I mean, we all, as parents, you can have that. You can wish things. But are you pushing them in a path because you want to form them the exact way that you want them to be? This is pride. After all, isn't the way we're molding our children supposed to be molding them in Christ-likeness first and foremost? On another note, there is also the rejection of advice or a compliment. Sometimes people come up to us and they speak their mind. I would hope people do that after the service with me as well. Um, sometimes it's valuable. Other times it's irrelevant. 
However, the way in which we receive that input is reflective in and of itself of our hearts. To reject advice or a compliment is actually a sign of pride because it shows that we are uncomfortable with being meek, with being vulnerable. I might have to explain this because sometimes people say, but surely rejecting a compliment is showing how humble I am. I don't deserve praise. But the fact is people that compliment you are complimenting you often because it's something big to them. It means a lot to them. And so to reject a compliment is to say, that's nothing compared to who I can actually be. If I really cared, I could do way more. So now I'm going to reject that compliment. I don't need a gift. No, back away. It's still a type of pride. We need to be comfortable with being insecure and vulnerable and to just accept a compliment or a gift. Christ poured out his heart and soul for us and let everyone see him for who he was. He didn't do this to show off how pure and perfect he was, to go, ha-ha, I'm perfect. No, he did this as a demonstration of how we are to be. We need to remember daily that we are not the center of the universe. And we need to be intentional about reminding ourselves of this. And nor in any respect are we any better than anyone else. Because just as God humbled himself, we are called to be humble. As God said in Genesis 2 verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. He's referring to Adam there and his need for Eve. But God made us to be stronger when we are united together just like this church congregation. So let's take that in mind. Let's be united and share with one another rather than just depending on our own wit or abilities. So now let's see what we can take from the example of Jeroboam. In a way, and this is a big stretch, Jeroboam is a far more gracious version of Trump. Jeroboam, he had no initial desire to throw his hat in the ring for leadership. But God speaks to him in the previous chapter through the prophet Ahijah to promise him that he will be king of Israel someday. Now this angers Solomon, who's the king at the time, as you might expect. And instead of like being like his David, tearing his clothes, putting on sackcloth and you know, sitting in dust and saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I've stuffed up. I apologize, I take it back. No, instead Solomon attempts to hunt him down and kill him. A very unwise decision for a wise king. And obviously, because this is God's plan, he fails. Jeroboam ends up hiding in Egypt until this point in time in the story where Rehoboam ascends the throne. And we see this important event over verses 2 and 4 of him talking to him and the result in verse 20. And again, kind of like Trump, Jeroboam pleads with Rehoboam to hear and listen to the needs of the people. He's the people's guy, Jeroboam. But Rehoboam, as we just read, refused. So the result, we read in verse 16, the Israelites band together and they elect Jeroboam as their new king, just as God promised. And for those of you who are really interested in the Bible, looking at all the parallels and interesting facts, Read 2 Samuel 20, because the exact same event happens with the exact same verse as 16 in 2 Samuel 20. The only difference, when it happens to David, David turns to God, God saves him, the kingdom is united. 
When it happens to Rehoboam, Rehoboam says, I am God, the kingdom splits. I love the parallels in the Bible. It's amazing. But now we come to verse 25, which is where we're going to find the real meat and potatoes of Jeroboam's reign. Up until this point, Jeroboam, he's been a real standout figure. He's a standout figure of selfless love, of selfless service, um, of diligence in his work, in his craft, and of loyalty. If we think of a modern-day example of what he might be, he would be a supervisor on a work site. That was his role. And we can read this in 1 Kings 11. But this is where Jeroboam goes off the rails, where we see who he truly is. Again, in verse 25, we see the city of Shechem and the high places. Hang on, here it is again, echoing the start of the chapter, showing that Jeroboam wanted a capital city that was clearly visible for everyone to see on the high place and easy to protect. It looks like he has a desire to be secure from a human point of view. Hmm. The second half of the verse reinforces this. Uh, Peniel is actually a hugely significant settlement. Uh, why is this? Well, because it's, well, it's a well-documented known location for pagan worship amongst the Canaanites who lived in the land before the Israelites. So why would Jeroboam, this king given by God, redevelop a city known for pagan worship? Well, it's because he's pandering to his foreign audience and his Israelite population who worship these fake gods in order that he can earn their favor and their loyalty. He wants a visual proof that he's got them happy. But this is only a stepping stone in his downward spiral. Verses 26 and 27 shows a genuine predicament that quickly arises. So Rehoboam had his big crisis. This is Jeroboam's. Remember that I mentioned how Jerusalem was where the temple of the Lord was. Well, what naturally happened next was that the Israelites in the north, well, they just began crossing the border south to visit the temple in order to give their offerings and their sacrifices to the Lord. For the Levites, this was a no-brainer. Uh, they were the tribe of Israel designated to maintain the temple and all the priestly duties and roles. But the other the issue was that the other nine tribes of the north, they could just come down and realize how much easier it was to just live in the southern kingdom, just live in Jerusalem. Why not? In verse 27, we see that Jeroboam realizes this for himself. However, instead of thinking, oh, but God promised me a kingdom. So this is all part of his plan. I'm just going to trust him. Maybe I should ask God what's going on. Jeroboam panics. He thinks to himself that his people will see how good it is with Rehoboam. He's going to see all the propaganda, the busts, the muscles. Rehoboam's going to be saying, look, number one guy, vote for me. All plastered all over Jerusalem, and they will choose to reunite with him. And they'll kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam is scared of being unimportant, and he feels that he's at threat of rejection. But this isn't what God promised him. God promised him a kingdom. He is not trusting in God's plan. To proof of that, Jeroboam goes to his advisors, not to God, and they provide their recommendation on how to resolve this problem. And we see that in verse 28 to 30. He makes two golden calves, and he tells his people to worship them instead. 
Now, that's a facepalm moment if I've ever seen one. I mean, look at all the similarities that we have to Aaron in Exodus. Jeroboam, after spending time in exile in Egypt, he leaves exile and he enters the promised land. And this is not just the promised land, the land of milk and honey. This is his promised land, his kingdom that God promised him. And as he appeals to the people, and the moment they get a little bit uppity with him, they start grumbling and they start demanding. He, says, he gets a bit nervous and he says, here you go, people. Here's the God that brought you out of Egypt. He builds not one but two golden calves or idols for his people to worship. In verses 29 and 30, we read how they are set up in Dan and Bethel. The significance is this is that throughout the Old Testament, you will see it comes up often, this referring to from Dan to Bethel or whatever it is, um, that phrase. And what it, it means today is sort of mean from north to south, east to west, or as far as the eye can see. Jeroboam wanted to make sure that his people worshipped within the confines of his kingdom, where he could see them, where he could hear them, where he knew what they were up to. And they did worship in his kingdom. In fact, they did it so well in verse 30 that it became a sin. It became a legalistic thing to worship at the two different, uh, at the two golden calves. You had to worship at both of them or you didn't get the blessing. And let's not forget all the other fake gods that they were worshiping to boot. But if you think it couldn't be any worse, it is. Because Jeroboam goes further in his desperation to tick off all the boxes of security. In verses 31 to 33, we'd see a detailed list of changes that Jeroboam makes. He sets up a new priestly order outside of God's chosen Levites. You can be a priest, and you can be a priest. That's not what God designed. He creates new events in the religious calendar, and he intentionally avoids that established by God. And he sacrifices and provides offerings on his own man-made idols. And interestingly, if you haven't noticed this already, throughout the whole section of this chapter, with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, there is absolutely no mention of either of them turning to God for his approval, let alone his opinion on what they were doing. Jeroboam's fear of removal and his distrust of even his own people meant that he made poor decisions that ended up destroying both his and Israel's reliance and relationship with God. Some say that this was because he was also proud. And maybe there's an element of that, making his idols, making the golden calves and worshipping at them. However, I think the biggest reason for Jeroboam's fear and distrust was not so much because of his pride, but because he was a doubting Thomas. What he couldn't see with his eyes, hear with his ears, or touch with his hands, he couldn't control. And that freaked him out. It's like someone with a steering wheel, clutching the wheel. He's like, Lord, I'm in control. I'm driving. Look, Lord, I'm following the rules. I'm indicating where I need to. I'm in the right lane. I'm doing everything right, God. You don't need to be in the driving seat. I've got it under control. Don't worry. Look, look, look. I can see. I'm, I'm doing the right speed. Everything's fine. And God's sitting there in the back seat saying, yeah, that's great, mate. But you don't even know where you're going. Where are you going? You're going the wrong direction. 
yeah, not going and following the ways that I've planned for you. Again, I can't help but think that we all have a bit of Jeroboam in us. Some of us think that God doesn't belong in our finances, our relationships, our workplaces, or perhaps even our free time. We say things like, I can see the cold, hard cash in my hand. I have earned this by the sweat of my brow. This is mine. I should be able to use it by myself, surely. But we forget that God's the one that gave you the job in the first place and that continues to give breath in your lungs every day. The fact is that even when times are tough, in work, in family, in money, and we can't see what the future holds, we are called to put our trust in Him who knows all things. We don't like not knowing what God has planned for us, That's why there's a verse in the Bible, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Like Jeroboam, we want to have assurance in our lives and in our futures. Assurances of job security. Assurances of stable relationships. Assurances of healthy bodies. Assurances that our hard-earned holidays will be enjoyable, that we can have them. And our staunch protection of these things, if we're grasping onto these so tightly, like the steering wheel, well, sometimes they can lead us to make some very rash decisions. Trusting in God is not just about what we see, what we hear, or what we touch. Trusting in God requires faith in His promises, which are for our good, because only then can we have true peace. So without thinking about it, we seem to copy the examples of two very poor role models, just a little bit. So where then should we turn in order to avoid the same mistakes that Rehoboam and Jeroboam made? Well, we turn to the ultimate king, the servant king, Jesus Christ. If you want to turn back with me to verse 7, I mean, we'll have it on the screen as well. Um, We'll see how all of this comes full circle. This is the advice that the elders gave to Rehoboam on how to deal with the concerned and the slightly demanding Israelites who wanted better treatment. They said this from verse 7, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. This was God speaking through them. He was giving the answer. This is how to be the perfect king. If you serve unselfishly for the greater good of others, accepting encouragement and rebuke, Love and bitter scorn, support and mockery. If you bear up with all of these things, people will see your heart and they will want to serve you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to make a bold statement here. God is not just speaking to Rehoboam. He's speaking of a greater king to come 
one that we actually know today. A king that is greater than David, an eternal king. To close and to prove this point, I want to read Philippians 2, verse 5 to 11. I heard it a couple of weeks ago, and I just knew instantly that it was the right passage to close with. So hear these words and see how Jesus is the only king who has fulfilled, nay, exceeded the advice of the elders. From verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in every nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, where Rehoboam failed. Even though Jesus had every reason to do it, he does not use it to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's where Jeroboam failed. He chickened out when things didn't look clear. But Jesus, he sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, I don't want to do this, Lord. But he obeyed unto death. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every other name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether we mean to or not, we tend to reflect Rehoboam and Jeroboam in our day-to-day lives. They were human, and we are humans too. So therefore, we need to be conscious and careful, intentional, in turning our lives to see and copy the example of Christ. By following His example, we will see humility in our lives. We will see grace in our lives. And we will see those trusting relationships grow, both with God and with others. So let's take that away. Let's take this on board as we go into this week. Let us follow the example of Christ, our servant King. Let's just pray. Dear Lord, thank you for being our perfect King. Though you did not come, or though you did come, with great power and authority, Jesus, You chose to live as a humble servant, a healer of the sick, a friend to the lonely, bringing mercy to us, the broken. Walk through life with us, Lord. Allow us to see you, to feel your presence as we walk in righteousness, the same steps that you walked. Turn your face toward us, Heavenly Father. May we experience the joy that comes from following you. This we ask in Christ, our Saviour and Redeemer's name. Amen.